What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? I am Gerald Daly, and this is the drop in. And I will tell you what, I've been going 10,000 miles a minute for like the last month. And it's sort of coming to a head a little bit, a little bit, because it's either feast or famine. You have everything happening, and then you have a lull, and everything happening, and then a lull. And right now, everything is happening. And it is awesome. It's all good stuff. It's actually all great stuff. It's exactly, not really, but sort of exactly the way I imagined it. And I am overly stoked. I just need more hours in the day. But I want to thank you guys for tuning in today, because this show is for you. It really is. If you've watched past episodes, you know why I do this show. And that's to inspire you to get off your damn couch and make life happen. This is not a dress rehearsal. We get one shot. And each guest that comes and visits us here at the NRM Studios embodies that shot. They are taking their shot. We talk about the crooked road of their lives and how they got to where they got to. And I said got a lot right there. But today, our guest is no different. The crooked road, where he's at today, and taking over the world. Every time I look on social media, my man Cole Seeger is somewhere at an award ceremony. He's holding up a trophy somewhere. He's doing the most amazing things in film. And I will tell you what, a handful of years ago, that isn't where it was at. And today, you get to hear that story only here on the drop-in. So thank you so much for tuning in today. It has been an amazing journey. The first season of the drop-in has over-exceeded expectations. We are in over 30 countries, rolling in on over 100,000 views, and it's all because of you because of you, so I cannot thank you enough. It is, it is awesome to be a part of this show, to be here with you every week, and to see it being shared all across the internet airwaves. It is, it, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's mind-boggling to me, because all I want to do is inspire in, in, in one person. One person every day, I try to inspire that one person, and now the message is reaching around the globe. And I thank you a ton, because that, that it's you. It's you. I get to be here to facilitate the message, but it's you guys that do this. It's the guests that come in here. If you've seen the past episodes, you have seen the people who have quit their lives to follow their passion. You have seen people start yoga studios. You have seen people buy halls that have made them the top banquet halls in their area, over-exceeded their expectations, and all because that's what they knew in their heart they were supposed to do. And today, today, you get to meet an amazing person. You know, Cole and I, we've run into each other here and there. We pay attention to each other on social media. And when I ask him to be on the show, he's like, man, I'd love to, G. I'd love to come on the show. And I said, your, your story fits exactly with the model of the drop-in. And I would be honored to have you in. He sent me over the bio, and I was even more blown away. More blown away. So without too much more, I want to introduce you to my man, Cole Seeger. Cole, what's going on, brother? Jeez, Gerald, you're making me blush over here. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure to be here. 
Oh, dude. You know, when I, I asked you and you said yes, I was blown away. I'm like, cool. Cole's, Cole's going to come on the show because, you know, you usually keep to yourself and you're quiet. You quietly are taking over the world. And uh, and so, you know, it, it was it was something that I've been looking forward to. And then, like I said in the opening, when you sent over the bio, some of the pictures and some of the different things that you've done in the film world, like, floored me. And we're going to get deep into that today. So thanks once again for uh, sitting down here in the NRM studios with me and uh, getting well, you're very fired welcome. up. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Cool. Well, let's start at the beginning because that's what we do here at the drop-in. Let's talk about growing up, man. How, how, was, how was your life? Where did you grow up and how was it growing up? Well, uh, I grew up in a, right near here in a little place called Orchard Lake. It's um, it's a little uh, place sandwiched between West Bloomfield, Waterford, Commerce, and Kegel Harbor. Really, really nice place, but it's there's not much to do there. It's, it's mainly just a, a one giant collection of suburbs. Um, but yeah, I had a really, really nice childhood. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, my dad, uh, he's uh, Mr. Bob Seeger, the famous Detroit rock and roll musician. Um, but to me, he's not that. He's just my dad. And cool. he's he and my mom, they're wonderful people. They brought me up in the best way possible. They they gave me the chance to have a normal childhood, which a lot of people that uh, are from a position like mine don't get to have. Uh, and it was he was so um, encouraging. Both of them were with my uh, with my artistic passion. Of course, he he was in the same he was in the same spot when he was my age, uh, but it was um, it was interesting growing up though, and it's it's a a very interesting kind of uh, influence it has because, and this is the epitome of first world problems we're about <laughs> to talk about. But when you're the uh, the child of a celebrity. And this has nothing to do with who my dad is as a person. He's the most down-to-earth, humble person ever. But when you're the child of a celebrity, a lot of times it feels like everything you do is done in the shadow of your parents. And you you feel like everyone's measuring you up or uh, measuring you up to them or that you're you're seen as an extension of them rather than as your own person for a while. I always thought that I was just going to be um, Bob Seger's son rather than Cole Seger. But um, but it had nothing to do with who my dad was. He never—he uh, really instilled in me that same humility, that same, that same uh, respect for everyone, no matter where they come from. And it's—you you always got to remember where you came from, because that's important. The, the people who lost their way, they're the people who forgot— uh, where they came from and the lessons they learned along the way, uh, and it was I had a really a really nice upbringing, uh, more than most people can say, I suppose. Well, it's rad, you know, when you talk about your dad that he was down to earth, you know, and he he tried to give you a normal childhood, and I'm sure, you know, going through school and. Uh, that's got to be a little bit of a of a hurdle to get over because they're probably going. You play guitar. You you write songs. Like what do you do? Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I played alto saxophone, and I was in marching band, which he was nice enough to come out to all my invitationals. But I'm I love music. I love um, I love music to death, and I can 
if I'm talking to a guy who's writing me a soundtrack for my movie, I can be like really, really descriptive on what I want, but I'm not a musician. Uh, I, that's it's it's just that skill set is not accessible to me. That's not what I'm good at. Um, now, like even besides that, growing up was kind of tough just because I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I was um, a weirdo loner in uh, in uh, elementary school and middle school. I was the one who was always playing pretend on the uh, on the playground. I was always making stupid jokes and just didn't really know how to fit in kind of um what it really was i didn't know how to be myself more than anything um it wasn't until um uh i think eighth grade when i joined the cross-country team at my middle school that i really started feeling like i belonged to something and then later on it was marching band i can totally relate yeah because uh, about seventh grade is when i started riding a skateboard and yeah. I switched my musical tastes. And up to that point, I was like with the popular kids because I played hockey. I did all those things. And it was pretty interesting because the minute I started riding skateboard and listening to punk rock, they didn't want to be my friend anymore. And I was friends with the other two skateboarders in our school. Uh. But uh, that's where I was comfortable. That's where I, I enjoyed being. I still played hockey and I still did all the things I did prior to skateboarding. Yeah. But I found somewhere I felt comfortable. Yeah, you feel you finally find find something that where you feel like you belong. Yes. kind of. Uh, for me, that was cross country. That was marching band. In my, I dropped out in sophomore year just because it got way too stressful. We won first uh, first in the state championships. Uh, we beat the reigning champions who've been champions for twenty one years straight. Um, and then after that, I got into uh, the school paper, actually. I was on the school paper in my senior year. Uh, apparently, I was really good. I think we like lived like similar lives at different times, because in high school, school paper, mm-hmm. drama club, I wasn't a good actor, but I helped paint sets and, mm-hmm. and do that kind of thing. Uh, I, you know, I could draw, because I was a little bit creative, so mm-hmm. cover of the yearbook, I did that. So I had a, a sort of a similar resume. I started playing cornet, and then when that didn't work out for me, a few years later, I picked up drums, because I'm a very active person. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit of a similar transit, uh, life transition, we'll say, trajectory of life, you know, yeah. just doing what's comfortable, which there's something to be said for that. There yeah. is something to be said for that. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of a lot of artist stories kind of line up, and unlike the the emotional progression, kind of, and just how you find your way into it. Um, but because uh, one of the reasons I got into uh, the newspaper is because I wanted to be a writer all my life. I, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was in the fourth grade. Um, uh, but writing novels is not necessarily the most like often doesn't carry a guarantee of income on it. So my my safeguard, and I was inspired to do it because I've heard a lot of um, a lot of authors come up in this way is I want to be a journalist. Um, and uh, and I was for a little bit after um, uh, I dropped out of OU briefly, I was an intern at the Oakland Press. I wrote one article that got published. Uh, it was about, I believe it was, um, Animal rescue in the wake of Hurricane Yolanda in the Philippines. Interesting. Say that like ten times. Fast. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, but it, it it ended up just not being my kind of thing, which uh, I'm sure we'll go into uh, when we talk about my college life. Which here here's the problem I ran into. I went to uh, to OU at first, Oakland University, and I wanted to learn and I wanted to study English literature because I wanted to learn how to write. Turns out, you don't study English literature to learn how to write. When you study English literature, you learn how to read. You learn how to examine literature, see the depth, see all the hidden meanings and all that. But, I mean, you can take a creative writing class to learn, like, structure and stuff like that. But if you want to learn how to write, you got to write. You write. You know, you bring up a a memory in my head, and somebody told me this years ago. If you want to learn how to swim... You don't read a book about how to swim. You jump in the water, you know, and that's exactly, exactly what you're saying. Yeah, uh, you. And here's the thing, and this is not to sound elitist or whatever, but when it comes to the arts or the creative arts, at least, you can't teach talent. You either got it or you don't, and it's because you, your mind is attuned to that sort of process. Mm. You, the thing you can teach though is craft. Yes, you can teach how to approach your passion. Kind mm-hmm. of. And um, OU, part of it was I just didn't know how to apply myself. I didn't really know how to discipline myself or work my way into that kind of good work ethic. But the other thing was is that I had a serious drug problem. I was smoking a lot of pot at the time. And I know that's not exactly what you call a hardcore addiction, but I, I was not living in the real world, to put it bluntly. Uh, I was there. There were I would go weeks and weeks without actually ever being in a sober state of mind, and and it really just sneaks up on you, just how much of your life that sort of thing can take over. Well, I make no bones about it. You know, on this show, I talk about you know my bout with drinking, and yeah. you're exactly right. You know, I didn't drink most of my life, and when I picked it up. It got progressively worse, and it does sneak up on you. Next thing you know, I'm all, like it took over my life. I'm not doing anything at all, not even riding my skateboard because yeah. this is what it's doing. So uh, I, I understand a little bit. Yeah, but uh, and, at, and at the beginning of my second year at OU, in which I was on academic probation, I was not attending class at all. Uh, I ended up flunking out. I uh, dropped out of class, and I ended up going to uh, an outpatient rehab procedure at Maple Grove. Um, one of the toughest things I've ever had done, and it wasn't necessarily getting clean that was the tough part. The tough part was figuring out why was I doing this beyond the obvious, you know, the physical, biological, psychological addiction mm-hmm. part of it. And it wasn't, and I kind of figured out what it was then, but it wasn't until Many years later, when I started seeing a new psychiatrist, that I really understood what was driving all of that. And my psychiatrist and I discovered that what I have, I've always said that like human beings are incredibly complex. It's very difficult to say this person is good, this person is bad. It's People are much more complicated than that. But I think that if you peel away all those complexities and the things that we've been um, nurtured and natured to do. Human people are often driven by very, very simple, basic uh, feelings and impulses. And at the bottom of my brain, what I was being affected by was I have a deep-seated fear 
of failure. And that it goes beyond just fear of failing. It's fear of not being good enough, fear of not measuring up to my own or other people's expectations, and more importantly, fear of being the weak link in any sort of thing that I'm involved with. I don't like to, I'm terrified of the idea of being a burden to other people. That's why I didn't want to admit that I had a problem, because I didn't want people to worry about me, and I didn't want to worry about myself. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it really affected my creative process, too, because I wanted to write novels, but every time I would get maybe a couple sentences into whatever I was writing before I decided, this is crap, I can't do any, I can't make anything out of this. And I would just constantly, like, and it, would, it, would, it wasn't just the stuff I was trying to create, it was just anything I would get involved in, like class or any programs I was in. It's, I, it would just, the moment I would hit the slightest bit of resistance, I would just throw in the towel and get out. Get out before I thought I was going to get hurt. I can understand that as well because I didn't realize it till I was like 45 years old, 44 years old, that I overachieved at everything in my life because I hated myself and I needed other people to tell me how cool I was because I couldn't <laughs> do it for myself. Oh yeah. So I, 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 you know, did all these things that made my resume look real cool. But I used to make jokes about it that you think this is cool. I have to go home with myself every night. <laughs> That's not that easy. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. And so uh, a little bit of a different way to put it, but a similar kind of thing. And I didn't get that enlightenment in my own brain mm. until I went through the darkest parts of my life. And when I got sober and I took accountability for that part of my life, I also took accountability that I'm all right in my own skin today, and, yeah. and it's a it's a tough road, and I don't advise anybody to go down that road. No, but sometimes we have to go through these tough times to get to where we're supposed to be. No, my dad, uh, my dad always told me, uh, you don't know who you really are until you're facing the abyss. And that is that's an understatement. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, but uh, after that, I ended up getting clean. But unfortunately, like many addicts, I just substituted one addiction for another. And after pot, it was drinking. And for two years, I went into um, OCC. I did better, uh, but I was still drinking and it was still becoming a problem. But this time, thankfully, I was the one who realized I had a problem rather than having my parents do an intervention on me. And I made the decision to get clean. Didn't have to go to rehab this time. I just stopped. And I think it was because I was just in the right place at the right time with the right motivation to get clean. Um, I remember the last night I drank, I had to wake up and go to work. I was working at a, um, at a health bar, uh, ju uh, a health nut juice bar cafe <laughs> in Birmingham. And I came into work that day really hungover, and I felt like my stomach was made out of jagged plastic. I felt like, oh, God, I've done, like, irreparable damage to myself. And it's like, okay, this—I got to make a change. I got to I gotta put an end to this. And I did. Um, and, uh, and, I, and it was around that time uh, after that that I decided uh, I wanted to finally pursue filmmaking. Now, that actually started years ago because I saw on your rundown you wanted to ask how to 
get becoming out at studying English literature turned into making films. Well, before we go too much further, I want to know yeah. how at four years old you knew you wanted to be a writer. Well, I was, it was in the fourth grade. <laughs> or in the fourth grade, I'm sorry. In the um, fourth grade. How did you know that? Because I had a past guest on. His name was Jarrett Pink. Uh, I'm sorry, Jarrett Schlaff from Pingree. And he's done some pretty cool stuff. And his was like the fourth grade, too. He realized in the fourth grade that yeah. he wanted to, like, that he could change the world. Yeah. That he could make an impact on the world. How in the fourth grade do you go, you know what, I knew then I needed to create with a, a pen and paper? Well, it's, I think it was, um, one is that I started reading. I, I started reading Harry Potter. Nice. Which, it's not my favorite book series, but I credit that series and J.K. Rowling with inspiring me to want to be an artist. And so many others. She exactly. did a heck of a job. Exactly, exactly. But I think it was, it was a creative writing assignment. I don't remember what I ended up writing, but I know that it was one of the few like assignments where you can write about anything. You can write you can write anything you want. And for a second, when I started writing, it's like, well, I can I can do anything with this. I can take the story wherever I want. I can make it about anyone I want. Um, uh, and it kind of just spiraled on from there. It's like I want to do this. I want to. It wasn't so much that I wanted to be a writer, it's I wanted to tell stories more than anything. Because uh, I think stories uh, are a fundamental aspect of the human condition. It's about, they're an integral part of how we um, make sense of the world, make sense of our own lives, make sense of who we are as people and how we relate to each other. Um, and uh, it would be years before I really understood the potential you could do with storytelling. Because when you start out, and this is, goes for any form of artist, usually when you first start out as an artist, you're imitating what you like. Definitely, yeah. definitely. You're, you're imitating what you like. Um, it isn't until you really start getting trained and you really start taking it seriously that you, you start to give your own spin on it, kind of. And after that, is the the point where you discover what your voice is. When you say a very important thing that I'd like our listeners to realize that, uh, you know, you have your own style, you have your own ideas, you have, you know, your own creativity. I'm a writer. For me, it was I'm an artist. I went to Wayne State and I'm like, I can already draw. I can draw. I don't have to take these classes. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. But... Yeah. Yes, I already had my already my imagination. I already knew what I wanted to do. But taking those classical drawing classes, knowing how to draw in charcoal, the nude body, understanding why colors are the way they are, made me such a better artist. It made my creativity even blossom even more. And you talked about that with a creative writing class or learning the craft. Yeah. It is very important. And so don't discount college because it does teach you some great things. But... Uh, don't let it stifle your imagination. No. There's a story I remember from uh, the great uh, filmmaker P.T. Anderson, who uh, he made uh, There Will Be Blood mm -hmm. and uh, The Master and uh, Punch Drunk Love. He briefly attended film school in California, and he had connections in the, in the film industry world. Uh, but he got in, and in one of his first classes, the, the teacher said, if any of you in here wants to write some garbage like Terminator 2, you can leave right now. <laughs> and apparently Anderson heard that and he stormed out of the fucking class <laughs> and said, fuck you. <laughs> 
And he said, and he, he you know, he recounted the the incident in a in an interview years later. And he says, he's like, no, a teacher does not say that. It's like, if that if that if the kid in that class wants to make Terminator Two, let him go make Terminator Two. I'd have to agree with him because, and this is something that I that endlessly frustrates me. When people say, ask me, is like, well, what are your favorite kind of films? Which, what kind of films do you like to make? It's like, I always say, if the film is good, I'll watch it. If the script is good, I'll make it. Uh, I think that there's something to be said for any genre of film, any kind of film, whether it's made for mainstream appeal or whether it's art house. It's, uh, you, there's no point in getting mad at people because they enjoy something that you don't. Or vice versa. It's it's like people go to see movies for different reasons. People make movies for different reasons, and there's room enough for everybody. I like it. I like it a lot. You know, we you you were heading into uh, after college, after uh, what you did next, and and my question was, how do you go from being a writer, going into English literature? Hmm. How does that translate? Into going to school to make movies. Well, uh, there's a, there was a couple of factors, and a couple of my my old English professors are probably going to get a little bit mad at me. <laughs> That's but, all right. But, at least uh, they're watching. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I just want to give a shout out to Miss um, uh, Jennifer McQuillan, my high school honors English teacher, who uh, made me into the artist I am today, and also Mr. Jim Corcoran. You guys kicked ass. Cool. Um, but the, the thing is, is I remember one of the, the challenges I faced in high school when I was studying uh, Shakespeare is I was having a lot of trouble understanding or reading it. And then I realized, of course I'm having trouble understanding Hamlet. This is a playwright. And there's meant to be people acting this out. There's meant to be a visual component to it. And when I got into college, they made me like read all the classic literature. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to shit on them because those are classics. They deserve that title. But at the same time, a lot of them just felt very inaccessible. Kind of, it's like, it's like if you don't know the history behind what's happening in this book, like um, uh, what is it, uh, Huckleberry Finn. I know that film that that a book is a classic, but I found it completely unreadable because it's written in tons of different old ass dialects that I can't understand. And I'm and I and this might make me sound like a plebe or whatever. It's just like, what is an ordinary person off the street going to get out of this? I'll tell you what they're not going to get out of it because an ordinary person on the street is going to throw this away. And but then I got into uh, and that and that did not get me into film. What got me into film is when I was in my first year at OU, a friend of mine, uh, Harper Schechter, uh, back then she was Jeremy Schechter, uh, she uh, and I wanted to make a screenplay called Threshold. And it was about a, uh, a paranoid schizophrenic escaping from a mental institution. This was written when I was smoking a lot of pot, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, and uh, it was my idea at first. And uh, I helped her write a prototype version of it. Harper was attending the Motion Picture Institute of Michigan at the time, which I would later attend. And I helped her write the uh, a short film that would serve as like we'd show it to investors and we'd get money for the feature. Um, and Harper directed it. 
And I just kind of I would give input, but it never really made it into the film. And it was okay for what it turned out. Uh, I would have done it a lot differently, but hindsight is twenty twenty, after all. But it put me in touch with a lot of people in that industry, people I still talk to today. And I would talk to them about these ideas I'd have for stories and whatnot. And uh, it was my buddy and sponsor, Matt Grushke, who listened to me and said, Cole, you sound like a film director. You should try that. Uh, don't write the scripts, or at least write the scripts, but also direct them. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? This could work out. And it took about four years of convincing to my mom to let me go to film school because uh, she wanted me to go to like an actual college uh, film school, like something at like um, U of M or Michigan State or whatever. Thank God she I didn't go to any of those because I've heard the film programs there are terrible because your average film program in a university or a college they will teach you film theory, as in they will show you films, they'll teach you how to analyze films and scripts and whatnot. The problem is they don't teach you how to make a film. They don't teach you how to make a budget. They don't teach you how to make a schedule. They don't teach you how to make contracts with people. They don't teach you any of the practical logistics stuff, which well, people say, oh, you're a director, you're a screenwriter. You don't need to worry about that. It's like, if you want to get your movie made, you need to think about that. And that's, I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. We're sitting here with Cole Seeger, and I'll tell you what, it is a lesson in life. So thank you very much for tuning in. I want to know, because I don't, you can call me a lummox, whatever. What does a director do? What does a writer do? How do they work together? Uh, can you give us that in a little bit of a, like a nutshell? Okay, uh, let me disabuse a popular uh, misconception, two popular misconceptions about filmmaking. Uh, the first one is uh, most people think that the director does everything on set or is in charge of everything. No. That's lies, as Corey Stewart would tell you. The first AD, the first assistant director, is in charge of everything on a film set. Okay. He's the one. They're the people who actually run the set. The director is in charge of making all creative decisions on a set. The bulk of a director's work is done in pre-production, which is like writing this. It's Well, at that point, the script is already written, but it's like thinking, okay, we're going to film this in a wide shot. We're going to film this in a medium shot. Uh, the camera's going to be here. The camera's going to go there. Um, and rehearsing with actors, figuring out the color palette, figuring out the art style and whatnot. But it's also logistic stuff. It's like, where are we going to shoot this? What time of day are we going to shoot it? How are we going to shoot this? What are the characters going to be wearing? And it's, I always say that like pre-production, when you're a director, it's like building a house. You have all these choices of how of what of what kind of walls you could want or what kind of furniture you could have or the house could be built this way or this house or the house could be built this way and it's lovely to have all these choices but guess what you got to make a choice and when you say yes to one thing you're saying no to ten other things um, and it's it's about making decisions and committing to them now the second. Um, uh, um, misconception about filmmaking that I want to disabuse is the auteur idea. Now, an auteur is essentially, 
you, you can use it to refer to any artist, but it's like an artist where you see it and you know it's made by that person. It's like Stanley Kubrick. Hitchcock? Would Hitchcock exactly, be one? Exactly, exactly. Hitchcock, uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Martin Scorsese, auteur directors. It's like when you see their films, you know it's made by them. They have a style and they exercise control over every aspect of the film in terms of like presentation. Uh, now, I think there's something to be said for that, but I also think there's a, there's it's exaggerating things a little bit because filmmaking, uh, you could say it about a lot of artistic mediums, but filmmaking is a collaborative artistic medium. It is a lot of people pooling together their talents and their input into a single product. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had to go to my cinematographer and said, I know I storyboarded this scene out, but I think it's crap. What do you think which, what do you think we should do? It's at you and your people, they need to be able to tell you what what to do at that point. Because it's like, I always tell people, uh, everyone on sets. First off, uh, my DP and my uh, the director of photography, my cinematographer, and my gaffer, I tell them, okay, first things first, I'm colorblind. <laughs> uh, Me too. <laughs> so I don't trust myself to know if this looks good in terms of colors. So if it looks bad, you tell me. But larger than that, I tell them, look, I am not going to get mad at you for telling me I'm doing something wrong. I'm not going to get mad at you for telling me we could do this better. Uh, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that kind of director. I well, wanna... and I think we, I, I'm going to say this. I think it's because you're upbringing. You're a very modest person. You've been through quite a bit already. Yeah. I think going through uh, what you spoke about as far as addiction and different things, it has a tendency for you to have uh, empathy and, and modesty. And I think, um, actually, I don't think I know from the way you're voicing it, you don't step on a set like the Gestapo and you're the be all and end all. And that's a no. very important uh, important role when you're playing with a team. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I tell them, it's like, I'm not going to get mad at you if you tell me that you think I'm going to make a mistake. I am going to get mad at you if you know I'm going to make a mistake and you don't say it. Right, right, right. Um, and you, you, uh, this is here's a one piece of advice I'll give to all aspiring directors and filmmakers. You cannot be good at everything. At some point, as the saying goes, you're going to need somebody to lean on. Mm-hmm. You're going to need to. Uh, and I tell my the, my uh, cinematographer from my last film, uh, Mr. Robert Skates, who taught cinematography at my film school. I, I just decided to call out the mailman and hire my old teacher. How cool. Um, he's a blast to work with. And I know I've uh, and I know that if he uh, uh, if he sees what I'm like a scene that we're about to do and he thinks of a better way to do it, he's gonna tell me and I'm gonna listen. Well, and there's a trust factor there, and I think that comes with relationships. Yes. You know, you, you, you gather a trust, and you start working with the same types of, uh, the same people, actually, yeah. as you gather that trust, and you know, you yeah. value their opinion. They value yours, and you can have a conversation. Yeah. Filmmaking is a collaborative medium, and uh, it is essential that you surround yourself with people who are much, much smarter than you. Yes. Um because I've always said this, a good crew can carry your production through even 
the biggest screw-ups. Uh, and I've had big screw-ups on my on my film sets. Let me tell you. Um, uh, and you you got to learn to trust people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you said, like there's the there are the people who step onto a set and they act like they're a freaking dictator. And let me tell you something. Another illusion about filmmaking that I want to disabuse. Um, unless you're already established or you got major connections in the film world. At least what I've seen in the independent film industry, the the, the working man types, uh, the people who are just pulling together people they know to make a movie. Uh, if you're an asshole, nobody is going to want to work with you. And that's in every different profession, any kind of celebrities, any kind of entertainment industry. I see it in the skateboard world all the time. I'm living proof of it. I was never the best skateboarder. But I always had a great time. I was passionate about it, and I was cool to people. And I took it to a pretty high level, and I've seen other guys who are uh, way bigger than I am because they're such cool people. You see it with like people like Dave Grohl in the music industry, your dad. They're not jerks. That's why they get the opportunities they get. They're talented, but they're good people in their heart, too. Yes, yes. I, I always say I want to be that guy to hear— to um, and it's not an ego thing. It's I want people in the film industry when they hear my name and I'm coming to them. It's like I want them to jump at the possibility yes. of working with me. Not because I'm an amazing, not or at least not just because I make good films, but because of I'm fun you, to work with. Of who you are. Yes. 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 I treat everybody with respect. I make sure everybody gets paid on in time and. Uh, I would rather work with someone who is, I would rather work with an actor who is pretty decent at acting and uh, good to work with versus someone who is super talented but an absolute nightmare to work with. Yes. Um, Because uh, I deal with anxiety constantly and I don't need uh, added anxiety of um, working with someone who I don't want to work with. Right. There's a motivational speaker I listened to once who put it best. He said there are two types of people that you'll meet in the at your job. There are people who you want to work with and there are the people you have to work with. <laughs> and I want to make sure that at least most of the people on my set are people I want to work with. Yes, yes. You know, that's so important. And, and, and again, in life, we're talking about life lessons here, people. I mean, that is exactly, you know, there's people you have to. I understand that. There are some people you have to. But if you have the choice and you can pick, like you just said, there's some people that may not be the top actor on the planet, but guess what? They're smooth to work with. And they do a damn good job, and they love what they do, and I think that shows through in every part of every uh, probably scene, any part of my life for sure. Um, you know, I want to get into a little bit of the filmmaking process, just because I have a hard time often with artwork. You know, I see it in my head, and it might take me months to get it on paper the way I see it in my head. How difficult is it to get your vision in your head up on a screen? Um, well, uh, the first, the first thing that, uh, I need to do when I'm writing a script or when I'm, uh, or when I'm making the movie is, uh, I have to think about, okay, what happens in this film first? What happens in the film? What events take place? That's what I start out with. Then I think about 
what is uh, what's the theme, what's it about, kind of. Because there, are, in my screenwriting class, they told us you got to write a log line first, which is like a one sentence description of what your film is going to be about. I don't start with that. I write that after I'm done with the script because I don't like. I see that view as kind of like reductionist, kind of. But the thing is, is and uh, here's the most difficult part of creativity for me, which is a lot of times early artists get stuck in the preemptive creative cycle where they're just deciding what is this going to be about. And, and, and it's like this burst of creativity where you just think, oh yeah, a story like this, it could be about, it could, it, we could, it could take place in this and have this kind of character as this kind of backstory. And the problem is, a lot of times you get stuck at that stage and never move on, because it's addicting this feeling that the story can go anywhere and it can be anything. But it has to be something, and you and, need to move forward with it. And there has to be some kind of continuity that you have to wrap in whatever the time frame is you're yes. working with. Yes, and uh, the, th the thing is, your f story needs focus. It needs to uh, have a follow-through on, on what it's doing. It needs to feel consistent and not meandering. So um, uh, what I do is... Uh, um, so here's here's what I like try to do when I'm when I think I'm writing a good story is my dad often talks about music and my dad is very very critical of music it's it's in his nature it's like once you become an artist in a medium a certain magic is lost because you start judging everything according to very strict regiments unlike it's you look back. I look back on a lot of movies I watched when I was very young, and I was like, "Wow, these movies are kind of garbage." But I was just <laughs> amazed by them because I was a kid and I didn't know any better. But my dad told me that, and he said this applies to any kind of art. the The art that remains timeless is the art that is relatable. It's it's an art. It's a work that makes a personal connection with your audience. It's, it's the work that anyone from any background, in any place, in any nation, with any kind of background or upbringing or whatever, they can understand what's happening. So um, what I do is I write the script, and then I pitch it to people. I don't give them the script. I pitch it to them. And I listen for a very specific response. And believe it or not, it's not, wow, that sounds like a really good story. What I listen for is, oh my God, I've gone through that before. Great lit, a great litmus test. Definitely a great litmus yeah. test. It, you need a, a um, you need a story or characters that it, that when people hear about them or see them on screen, it's like, it's like they think, oh my God, that's me. Or oh my God, I know somebody like that. It's like um, the the analogy I always use is: if you ever seen The Exorcist? Mm -hmm. The Exorcist. Uh, a lot of people like watch it nowadays because it doesn't have like like really really over dramatic soundtrack or jump scares. People don't think it's scary. But here's what I say about it: The Exorcist is not scary because it's about um, 
uh, a little girl who got possessed by a demon. The Exorcist is scary because it's about a mother coming to grips with the fact that something horrible is happening to her daughter that she has absolutely no control over and no solution to. And that is every parent's nightmare. Great point. I never thought about it like that. I know when I saw it, my older sister asked me to sleep at the foot of her door. (laughs) She was that terrified. Um, You know, we're sitting here with Cole Seeger, and I'm I'm interested. I have to ask this question. I know we have a video I'd like you to take that you actually gave to me to show today, and I'd like to check that out in a second. But, you know, you talk about writing and directing. Are most writers, directors, are most directors, writers? Is that a a unique kind of combination? Uh. It depends on who you ask. There are a lot of people who just write screenplays, and there are a lot of directors who never write their own screenplays, and sometimes for good reason, because sometimes it's a little bit liberating to direct something that you didn't write. You have a, you you uh, often feel like you have a much more unbiased um, uh, perspective on it. I always say that uh, unless you're Stanley Kubrick or Alfred Hitchcock, the absolute worst thing you can hear, you can see in the opening credits of your film is written by, directed by, produced by, and starring the same person. Right, right. Uh, And I'm a DIY guy, but I don't want to see that. (laughs) Yes, yes. Not that DIY. (laughs) Um, uh, Because I'm a writer-director. and it's and it's just because uh, I love both of the processes. I love writing and I love directing, uh, and I love seeing that translation from the screenplay into the onto the screen. And uh, it's 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 just it's a it's a difficult process because uh, I'll talk about it later. But the it's the curse of the artist that if you're if you're a good artist. If you're um, good at what you're doing, you are constantly second-guessing your own judgment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I always say that, uh, you know, uh, back in the day, there was that left-brain, right-brain thing of explaining how people's minds work. Turns out that was very much uh, over-simplifying how things work. But I think with creative types, there's an analogy to that, which is there's one side of the brain— that's uh, the creative side, which is just pure imagination. Just all your ideas, all your characters, all your scenarios come out of that. The other side of the brain is the editor slash critic. <laughs> and Gerald, I have the nastiest fucking critic living inside my skull. I am not afraid of any negative criticism whatsoever because it can't be half as bad as the stuff that my inner inner editor says to me. But that's what's going to make you great. You know, we have a video here that um, I'd like you to talk about. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a trailer for my latest short film that I, uh, that I finished. Um, technically, post-production uh, was completed uh, earlier this year, but it's called The 404 Diner. It was my first film I made right after I got out of MPI. I'm... I'm really proud of it. I'm ready to move on to other things, but I think it came together wonderfully. And um, for all you watching, uh, here it is. Yeah, let's check it out.
Hey Sam, how's today going? Does anything about today seem strange to you? Strange? Well, what do you mean by that, sugar? Uh, yeah, so that that was that's a little sneak peek at my uh, latest movie. <laughs> now I saw a bunch of awards pop up there. Uh, th- that's got to be an incredible feeling to put all that time and effort and have other people's re- other people recognize that. It's a very wonderful feeling to have people tell you that you're not completely full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm creeped out. Like that creeped me out right there. I want to see more. Oh, thank I want to see more. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it came together really well. The the uh, the catalyst for it was um, after I got out of MPI after I graduated, um, they asked me to help teach a class afterwards, which is basically two alumni come on, one director, one first AD, and uh, the director supplies a script, and the students get together to do like a mock film set. And I wrote this the first draft of that the tra- of the film that you, we just saw the trailer for. I wrote it for that class, and eventually I just developed it into its own thing. Um, and I'm super proud of it. Um, uh, it's it's been getting really, really good reviews. I think it's gotten into five or six film festivals so far, which I'm happy that it got into a film festival uh, at all. Um, that's that's uh, that's amazing. And my time at MPI, I went there. I, I attended the same year as Corey Stewart, actually. Um, it was, I got more done in that one year at that film school than I did in four years at uh, OU and OCC. Right on. Um, they're, they're great people there. And um, I also owe a lot to Ian Benzman, who also attended MPI. Um, and he's produced all of my films now. And uh, I could not be happier with how 449 turned out. And I could not be happier with where my life is going at this point. Right on. You know, uh, the, again, I was creeped out by that. I'm, I'm, uh, that's what a trailer is supposed to do. The movie is doing great for you. You've won a, uh, several awards. You've been recognized around the country. Does anyone stand out ahead of anything else? <sighs> Let me think. I think the, 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 the one thing that really got to me was um, when I when I came home from the uh, Indie Gathering International, and I got to show my dad my trophy. And there's a wonderful picture of me and him, uh, and uh, there's a there's some guy that commented on I can't remember who, but he says, "That's a wonderful guy. I'm sure he'll be able to say he knew you when." No way. That is a brag comment. That is a brag comment. I mean, you know, the other thing is, is how about that feeling the first time you saw your work on a big screen and other people are reacting to it? Uh, Yeah. See, that's the thing, though. I don't get any enjoyment from watching it on the screen because I've seen it like over a thousand times now. What I get joy from is seeing people reacting to it because... I, I, here's here's something that I'll say. When it finally premiered, we did it a pre, uh, premiere with a lot with a lot of other stuff from our production company at a theater in Royal Oak. 
And the first half of the film is very like campy, very like there, there's something wrong, but it's like everything feels like Happy Gilmore, like really cheesy 50s sitcom kind of thing. And then at the halfway point, things start getting really, really dark and really, really nightmarish. And in the theater, first half of the of the film, everybody's laughing. The second half, when things start to get dark, it was dead silent. And I was like, okay, yeah, I did, I, I, I did it right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, and because here's, and this is what I was talking about before, the curse of the artist when you're watching or looking at your own work is that when I watch the 404 Diner, and please don't take this to me, I'm depressed or whatever, or unsatisfied with it, it's when I look at it, I don't see what I got right in the film. I only see what I got wrong or what I think I could have done better. And I don't let that get me down. I just say, well, we'll just I'll just chalk that up to lessons learned and I won't make that mistake again. And I think it's a creative curse. You know, if I look at a painting I did or a logo or a drawing, I watch this show. I just pick it apart. I had to quit watching every show because all I do is <laughs> like, I would destroy myself. And that's very, very common for artistic types. My dad refuses to watch any footage of himself performing because he thinks it'll influence him in a negative way. Um, my lead actress, the, the one who plays the creepy waitress in the film, um, a wonderful person, but she didn't show up for the premiere and she doesn't do that kind of stuff. And more power to her because she is w- one of the best actresses in this area, probably. Julie Klein. She's great. Right on. Right yeah. on. You know, uh, this show goes so fast, Cole. We're, Tell me about we're, it. We're down to the last five minutes already, and I we haven't even touched on half of the things, but I want to know about what you're working on right now. You have your fifth script in the works. What do you got going, man? What I'm working on right now is a little, um, it's a complete far cry from the tra- from the movie you just saw the trailer for. It's a, uh, it's a character drama, coming-of-age story about um, two guys who... We're friends in high school and college. They wanted to go into acting together, but one of them left for L.A. to pursue acting. One of them had to stay behind for a, and get a nine-to-five job to support his mom. Three years go by, and at the start of the film, the one who went out to L.A. calls up his friend and says, hey, I'm thinking about coming home, and this is the first time he's coming home in three years. And the friend says, okay, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll meet up. It'll be just like old times. And this, the film takes place over the course of the weekend they spend together. And the crux of the story is them slowly realizing that in the three years they've been apart, they've become very, very different people. This and goes right exactly with what you were talking about with your dad, about people who can relate for for eternity, that can relate to the story. And I've heard like the, the, that response, this is so relatable, almost every time I've pitched this story. And it gives me a really, really good feeling about it. I've got two people who are very talented actors and very close friends of mine who, thank God they're okay with this. The parts were written with them in mind, and they're kind of playing themselves to a certain extent. But it's a, it's a story about how people change and how people grow apart sometimes, for better or for worse. Yeah, and we all do. Yeah, it's and sometimes it's because, you know, when I was getting clean, there are a lot of people I had to say goodbye to because— that kind of crowd, that kind of atmosphere, I couldn't stay in that sort of thing and remain sober. And some people, it's like, I got this internship out in Colorado. I got to go out there. I got to pursue my dreams. And I don't fault them for that because 
you do what you got to do to um, to pursue your dreams. Um, and uh, and I gotta I gotta make this happen because um, I want to create something that feels really emotional and really personal. Uh, and I've always had a very active imagination, a really really deep inner imagination and inner world that I draw my stuff from. But the thing is, and I'm going to steal a phrase from Game of Thrones to illustrate this, the problem that a lot of creative types face is that they get so wrapped up in their own minds that they forget that there's a real world happening around them. And I always uh, say, my mind is like the sea. It's beautiful and it's boundless, but if I stay too long in it, I'm going to drown. And I, I can't do that. Yep, there's a great, great uh, quote, and you, you quoted a motivational speaker earlier. I'm going to quote Tony Robbins, and he says, you stay in your head, you're dead. I have it written on a dry erase board at home. That's a perfect statement. I, I believe that uh, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. Um, you know, if, folks, is there anywhere people can see the 404 Diner? How do people keep track of you, what you're doing, your new script? How do people keep tabs on Cole Seeger? Well, um... I have uh, accounts on Instagram and Twitter. Twitter, I haven't updated in months, but I'm going to tr- be better about it now. But if you want to keep up on the 404 Diner, um, you'll want to check out my production. Uh, the production company I work for is Facebook page. It's called Ten Six Productions. It's the number, the word ten, the number six T H S. Um, that's the company that produces all of my films, and it will be producing my fifth film which uh, I'll be announcing more about that in the coming months. I'm hoping to shoot it in January and have it ready for the festival um, for the festival circuits, probably mid-2020, probably. Um, but uh, it's something I don't want to rush. Originally, I was going to shoot in November, but I decided, no, no, I got to I gotta wait. I got to make this work. Right on. Well, for all of you at home watching, make sure to follow Cole. Check out his production company. And Cole, I invite you back when you get closer to uh, uh, releasing your next film, man. Thank you so much Thanks for, for hanging me. out with me today. Uh, I'm looking forward to everything that you have to offer. And for you guys... Share this with everybody. If you know anybody who is a creative, who wants to hear about life, who is just fired up and needs to hear the story that's going to get them over the top, get them to the drop-in. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am Gerald Valley. That's Cole Seeger. And this has been The Drop-In. See you around.